Well, good morning, Four Corners. I trust that the Lord will be good to us this morning and showing us Himself through song and prayer and preaching and affirming our faith through the Lord's Supper, that He'll make His gospel clear to us and that He would be gracious to us this morning in changing our hearts. We all need to be further conformed into the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus, and only He can do that. And so we come to Him this morning, humble before Him, and trusting that He alone can do the work in us. So I pray, I hope that you've come here this morning expectant that God would do a work in you through His Word. My understanding is that today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And recently, this past week, I read some stories about Christians in North Korea. And this probably is one of the worst places, earthly speaking, physically speaking, one of the worst places to be a Christian in the world. And I was just reading some stories about the Christians there in North Korea, and it was very moving to hear of these Christians who would get up early in the morning, and they would go out on a boat, and they would go out together on a small boat so that they could, when they get out on the water, could get their scriptures out, could get out the Bible, and open it up, and study it, and pray, and and sing to God, and, and be there together around God's Word. And I was also heard a story of, of a woman whose husband had been persecuted and ultimately killed. He had been thrown in jail for confessing Jesus, and, and he had uh, there in jail started church, started basically a church in the prison because he continued to preach Christ in the prison. And he eventually was killed, and she began to... She continued, her, she herself, who had been converted through her husband, was also preaching Christ and sharing Jesus. And she was thrown into prison. And one of the things that she says is that what got her through that rough time, that horrible time, was meditating on God's word. So here in just these two stories, you see that in a place like North Korea, where Christians are persecuted, what is it they treasure? What is it that gets them through? What is it they take so seriously? This book, the Bible, in every sector of the world where there are true Christians, there are people who love the Bible. It is the mark of a Christian to love the Bible. Do you love the Bible? Do you love the Bible? It's one of the ways that you can examine yourself as we try to do frequently is ask ourselves from Scripture, what does Scripture say about a true Christian? And, and I think one of the things that we find is that true Christians love the Scriptures. And we know we fall short of devoting ourselves to the Scriptures, reading them, meditating on them, memorizing them, sharing them with our children. But deep in your heart, the question must pierce you, do you love the Bible? And with that being said, we now come to open the Bible as a church to Genesis chapter 15. As we open the Bible this morning, my hope is that we will consider how much of a treasure it really is. You know, there's a lot of things that we could do with our minds right now. A lot of things. We could sort of go into neutral. It may not be that you're thinking what you would see as evil thoughts. Selfish thoughts, lustful thoughts, greedy thoughts, materialistic thoughts, whatever else. But maybe there's just a general indifference or a slothfulness really about this time. We open up the Bible and maybe you just want to kind of be entertained or have your ears tickled or maybe uh, just uh, trail off in your mind. The hope is that that won't be the case. That we'll see this book as precious as we open it or turn to it even on our phones that these words, words of life, words from God, will pierce us and that we will treasure them. And as we come to Genesis 15, 
which is where we find ourselves today. We are still looking at Abram. We are in a series on the book of Genesis going through. We're now, we now find ourselves in chapter 15. I was recently telling one of our elders, I was like, you know, this is, uh, since we've been at Madras, we've gone all the way from chapter 4 to chapter 15. Isn't that good? You know, we're, we're working through. And maybe some of you are thinking, no, that is not. That is slow. But hopefully... Uh, it is, is a little quicker than we went through chapters 1 to 3, but we're, we're trying to, in a reasonable way, in my mind at least, in a reasonable yet, yet careful way, work through this precious book, work through this fundamental book, this foundational book for all of the Christian worldview, for all of the Bible, for all of the theology that we find throughout Scripture. This is foundational. We're right now in a passage or in a chunk of Genesis that deals with this character Abram, or who's later named Abraham, father of a multitude. And that goes from all the way from chapter 12 up through 25. And then we get Isaac, and then we get Jacob. And we have that story at the end of Genesis with Jacob's son Joseph. And then we're done with Genesis after that. So that's where we're headed. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But right now we are looking at Abraham. And beginning, what, what I want to do before we jump in this morning is I want to give you a little bit of a review because we come to a mountain peak passage this morning in Genesis 15. So I want to give you a little bit of review of where we've been so far with this guy, Abram. So let me just go through this quickly. Beginning in chapter 12, we see that God calls Abram out of paganism, we're told elsewhere in the Bible. Joshua 24, he calls him out of a pagan background He calls him and makes promises to him, tells him to go to a land that he'll show him. And we see that those promises center on offspring and a land that God will make him a great nation and bless the whole world through him. And so we read in chapter 12, verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation. And then verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land. So the big promise, great nation, and that involves these kind of two pillars offspring and land. And we see Abram's response. What does he do? He believes and obeys. Faith filled or faith fueled obedience. That is Abram's response. And then at the end of chapter 12, we get this famine in the land. And what does Abram do? We see that he kind of stumbles. He has feeble faith. He goes down to Egypt, which in and of itself is not bad. But As he's heading to Egypt, he concocts this plan where he's going to lie about his wife. You know, it's a half lie. She's his half sister, but he's going to say, she's just my sister so that they won't kill him because she's exceedingly beautiful. And he thinks, if I go into Egypt as a foreigner, they see my beautiful wife. They're going to kill me and take my wife. So I'm going to come up with this plan. I'm going to lie. We saw there Abram's feeble faith. But in the midst of all of that, we saw God protecting Abram. He returns to the land with many possessions. So that's chapter 12. And then we go in to chapter 13. And there we get Abram's faith renewed. What do we see there? We see Abram seeking God, being a peacemaker. Abram and Lot have a little bit of tension going on there. Lot is his nephew and Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen are not getting along with each other. And so Abram tells Lot, look, let's separate so we don't have this tension here, this conflict. And you go wherever you want. The whole land there, take it wherever you want to go and I'll go the other direction. And so we see this very generous offer given to Lot. And in that we see Abram entrusting his future into God's hands. Abram does not have to secure his own future. He doesn't have to say, well, hold on a second, Lot. Let me think about this. What is most strategic for me? Because I'm the blessed guy. I'm the promised guy. And so I'm going to try to figure out where exactly I want to be. He doesn't do that. He just trusts God. He says, Lot, you choose. God's got me covered. So that's what we saw there in chapter 13. And at the end of that chapter, God reaffirms his promises to Abram. So listen to these words and think about what was said in chapter 12. He says this, lift up your eyes and look for the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. So once again, chapter 12, remember great nation, land, 
offspring. Then we get chapter 13 at the very end after this generosity of Abram, after this faithfulness of Abram, this trust in God. We see God reaffirming to him these two things, land, offspring, offspring in the land. They're together. And then over the last two weeks, we've covered chapter 14. And Abram in chapter 14 is portrayed as the blessed man. God gives him safety and strength in the land. God reminds him of the blessing through a local priest king. We talked about Melchizedek, a very interesting, mysterious figure. We talked about him last week. But God, through this instrument of this random, kind of out of the middle of nowhere priest king in Canaan, God affirms Abram, reminds him of the blessing, reminds him of the promise. And we saw... Abram rescuing Lot and fighting temptation against the king of Sodom. What does the king of Sodom do after Abram rescues Lot and has all these possessions and has Lot and the people? The king of Sodom comes out to him and says, you give me the people, I give you all the possessions. And what does Abram say? That's great. I would love to have all this treasure. I would love to have all this stuff. That's what the world would say. That's what someone who doesn't know God would say. But not Abram. He says, I don't want any of these possessions. You keep them. Because I don't want you to later say, look, I made Abram rich. Why does Abram care about that? Because he cares about the glory of God, the renown of God. Who made Abram rich? Who blessed Abram? The Lord did. And for Abram, that truth must stand. And so last week we saw him serving and standing against this Temptation. So a little review there. Now we come to chapter 15. And here in this really mountain peak chapter, we see that God's promises of offspring, remember these two things, offspring and land, these two promises are confirmed for Abram. They're confirmed individually and they're confirmed together. And so the title for this morning's sermon is Seed and Land Confirmed, And if you open up your bulletin there, you'll be able to see that. So hopefully that fills in. Maybe for those of you who have not been following us so far, maybe you just need a reminder. Uh, sometimes, you know, you miss a, a sermon, you, you catch one, and you just sort of get out of the loop a little bit. So hopefully that helps you to place in context well what it is that we're going to look at today with this interaction between Abram and God. As we see... These promises, which we've seen over and over and over again of offspring and land, confirmed for Abram by the Lord. So if you will, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. So chapter 15 of Genesis. This is God's word. It is profitable and true, trustworthy, precious. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven. Let me say this briefly. There's a little Hebrew word here that is just a little word. And it implies, please, please. It's as though the Lord takes Abraham out. Hey, Please, look. look. It's a very intimate kind of expression. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, 
Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to, from the, river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray. Ask for the Lord's blessing on our service. Ask that he will use his word in our lives today. And let's ask that God would be with people today, even now. Isn't that that amazing to think? Right now, there are Christians gathered in places of the world with the threat of death. And they are singing to God. They are calling upon the name of Christ. They're confessing that Jesus is Lord. Risk of death. None of us will die today because of Jesus, presumably. We'll go and have lunch and go about our day. But some of them may. Let's pray for them. Father, we thank you for your people who are bearing witness to you in the world under great danger, even now. Father, how hard it must be to worship you under the thought that your children may be taken and killed, that your wife might be raped, That you yourself might be tortured and thrown in prison, never to see your family again. And yet they confess Christ because they know, because he lives in them. Father, we pray for them today. We know nothing of this, God. Despite the fact that our co-workers may laugh at us or the government may continue to make laws that run contrary to what we believe And our children are taught perverse things in schools and elsewhere. And these things are hard. But would we remember, Father, that there are people even now who are suffering grievously because they bear the name of your son. We pray for them. God, help us pray for them more. Help us be willing to walk through the valley of the shadow of death for your sake. Whatever that means, God, help us be willing to face mockery and laughter from those in our families and our friends who think our Christ is silly, who think our Bible is ridiculously errant, problematic, even some thinking the Bible is evil, that your works are false and perverse. God, the world is dark. It is darkness. And when the light shines there, we see, Father, that the world hates the light. Father, we pray that you would help us be more realistic in our expectations of what life in this world will be like for the Christian. And would this day remind us of the call of Christ to pick up our cross daily and follow Him. All that that entails, would you teach us 
Lord, we thank you that in this country we can worship you freely. We thank you that you have given us this blessing, this gift. Would we not take it for granted? Would we be good stewards of this gift where we do not have to hide away in secret to worship you? Would we be good stewards of what you've entrusted to our care? Thank you now, Father, for your word. We pray that it would do its work, that your spirit would do his work through it in us. God, we thank you that you've brought us here today providentially. We pray that as we study Genesis 15, that the truth of the gospel would be clear, that the intention of Moses as he wrote this chapter would be clear, and that the application would be made by your spirit as we are attentive to the text. We thank you for this time, and God, we ask your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let me just say a few things about this passage, because what I'm going to do this morning is kind of go through it thematically. But what I want to do is take a moment to give you a sense for its structure. So there are two parts and two topics in this passage in Genesis 15. The two parts are verses 1 to 6 and verses 7 to 21. Those are two distinct parts, and they center on two topics. The first topic is the seed, and that's the topic of verses 1 to 6. Abram asks God about the seed. We get that dialogue between God and Abram about the seed. And then verses 7 and following, we get this dialogue about the land. Abram has a question for God about the land. And then by the time you get to the end of the chapter, the two themes, these two topics, are woven together. The land and the seed. We also have a pattern here. If you look at the dialogue between God and Abram in verses 1 to 6, and you look at the dialogue in verses 7 and following, you see the same kind of thing. God speaks, Abram asks a question, God clarifies, explains, and so forth. So you see this pattern running throughout. But what is the net effect of chapter 15 of the book of Genesis? What is the net effect that that one should get when leaving this passage? And it is this, that God's promises are confirmed for Abram. God's promises have been the theme as we've been walking through all of these chapters. But it's here that we see that God's promises are confirmed. Clearly, this is the intention of this chapter. And as God confirms these promises of seed and land, we see four things going on. So if you will, look at the bulletin there and you'll see these four things listed under the instruction portion of our service under the sermon. Four things that we see going on as God is confirming these promises for Abram. So here they are. Courage restored, credited righteousness, clarification received, and covenant ratified. That's what's going on as we see this this objective of God to confirm the promises to Abram. These are the four things we see going on in these verses. So let's look at this first one. Courage restored. So we've been following this man, Abram, for some time. And you might be wondering, what is going on in Abram's heart at this point? We, don't, we haven't seen a lot of speaking from Abram. And we have seen his faith expressed in various ways. We've seen his obedience. We've seen his, his character. We've seen him giving so gener- generously to Lot. We've seen him go to rescue Lot when he's been captured. So we've seen a lot about Abram, but you might be wondering at this point, what is going on on the inside? What's going on in Abram's heart? And the answer, if we could put it very simply, is he is afraid. Abram is fearful. He's afraid. So look at verse 1. This is what God says to him. Very beginning of this passage. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield Your reward shall be very great. Now, why in the world is Abram afraid? I mean, of all times in this narrative so far, why is it at this point that we would get this note about Abram being afraid? I mean, he has just with 318 men, he has overcome all of these kings, these these invading kings. He's overcome their army so as to take back Lot and all of these possessions. 
We've seen him blessed by Melchizedek. And we've seen this local king basically say to him, look, I know you're a powerful person. I know that you won this victory. Here, you keep the possessions. Just give me the people. So really, I mean, Abram should be, should be on cloud nine. He should be at the very top. He should be in a, in a mountain peak place. But he's not. He's, he's afraid. Maybe this is because he fears the repercussions of what's happened. Maybe he's tempted to fear that these kings are going to come back and try to take him over, try to attack him. Maybe he is afraid of the jealousy and repercussions of, of the king of Sodom and others who will say, you know, it's really just not safe for us to be here with this guy Abram in the, in the area. We need to wage war on him. He's just too much of a threat. Isn't that what happened ultimately with Pharaoh? Remember the Hebrews at the beginning of Exodus became so great that the Hebrews began to be a little bit fearful of this great people. And so what they do, they just enslave them. So they would not be able to rise up against them. So maybe Abram is thinking about these possible repercussions. But probably his fear derives from the fact that he has many, and get this, he has many unanswered questions. He just does not have very much clarity. Verses 2 to 3, this is what Abram says to God. Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. You know, to those of us who just read this in our, in our culture and just coming at it, reading through Genesis, and maybe you've done this, you've read through this many times, we just fail to understand this. And that's one of the reasons why I tried to give you the context all the way going back to chapter 12, because you've seen, you've seen that every interaction between God and Abram. Remember, God came to Abram in Mesopotamia and said, leave everything and follow me. And that all this following of God, all this trust in God, all this movement throughout the land is hinging on a promise of offspring. And here's Abram. He's like, I mean, I got a lot of donkeys. I've got a lot of camels. Pharaoh didn't kill me. These kings didn't kill me. Lot's safe, sort of. He's back in Sodom. But I don't have any offspring. Everything is about the offspring. And I don't have one. So we hear Abram here. This is where his fear begins to come in. And so Abram's human solution is, I got this guy in my household. That may be what you mean, God. That's probably what you meant. You probably just meant that this household servant of mine, Eliezer, whom I scooped up at some point, he's kind of my my closest, most loyal servant in my household. He'll be my offspring. I'll kind of adopt him and he'll get all, you're going to do all this great stuff you, you promised through this guy. No, that's not God's plan at all, but we'll get to that point. So that's the first thing. Abram is confused about the offspring, but then Abram is also questioning about the land. We see in verse eight, but he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? I mean, there are all these people in the land who, all these Canaanites are in the land. Abram does not have control of the land currently. Abram has a barren wife. He's getting older and older and older. He has no offspring. No offspring, no land. God, I've been following you for a while. You've been really good to me. You've been near to me. I've been worshiping you. You've been confirming my faith, but I don't have offspring or land. These are huge for Abram. Abram trusts God, but he is confused. He lacks clarity. So he fears. And that tells us that the purpose of this interaction between God and Abram in chapter 15 of Genesis, the purpose of this confirmation passage is to restore Abram's courage. God is concerned with our faith. Everything that we see in chapter 15 is meant to build Abram up. God cares about the spiritual health of his servant. And here, here's where I want you to notice something very important. This is something we have, to, we have to see really clearly in this interaction between God and Abram. God restores Abram's courage, yes, by ultimately confirming what he will receive 
and that he will die in peace at an old age. So at that point, you know, I mean, imagine if God came to you tomorrow and said, uh, you're going to die 95 and, you know, you're not going to be frail. You're going to be in decent health. You're just going to fall over at 95. You're still going to be gardening and stuff at 95 and you're going to be at peace. Well, I mean, that would take away all the fear in the world that you might have about life. You just sort of plow through because you're going to live old and you're going to die happy. That's basically what God goes on to tell him. And yes, this does restore Abram's courage, but even more, and here's what we need to see, even more, God does this by reminding Abram of who he is with the words, I am. We see that in verse one, I am your shield. And then in verse seven, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. In other words, in the midst of this fearfulness, in the midst of Abram's lack of courage at this moment, what does God do? God points Abram to himself. I am your shield, Abram. I am the Lord. Remember, I'm faithful. I promised you, I brought you out of the land, right? Have I been with you? Yes. My intention for you is in the future. It's, it's not over yet. My purposes are not accomplished yet. God points to himself. So here's a question for us. What do we take away from this as Christians today? There's two things I want you to see by way of implication. The first is this, that God cares for our fearful hearts. This is, this is a fundamental truth. Because in moments of fear, that's when we are most likely to think that God doesn't care. When we're afraid, whatever it might be, you fill in the blank. But when we're afraid about anything in life, and maybe that's the case with many of us this morning. You came here this morning afraid. You came here this morning with a weak and feeble heart. To some extent, that's all of us. We need to hear once again that God cares about this. He's not oblivious to this. He's not nonchalant about our fearful hearts. He cares about our fears. And here is the other thing we need to see. That God will always point us to himself. If you have fear this morning about whatever it might be, as Abram did at the beginning of this point in his life, whatever your fear entails, this is the one remedy for you. There's not many, there's one. It is God's character. That's the one thing that will be like a rock underneath you during this time of fear in your life. It's not figuring out a plan. It's not making sure that the circumstances will change. It's not making sure that you put up some guardrails. All of those things are part of his wisdom and he shows us that. But at the end of the day, the only remedy to fear, no matter what it is, is to be reminded, I am. I am. And that's exactly what God does for Abram. In other words, as you are moving towards the consummation, which is heaven, glory, new heaven, new earth, new body, perfect existence for eternity, as we're moving towards consummation, just like Abram, as he's moving towards the realization of these promises, we're moving towards the realization of these promises. And as we are doing this, the only source of courage is God himself. That's it. Listen to these words from Psalm 18 too. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Listen, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 28, 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts. Man, if we could say these words from the heart. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. Can you imagine that image? I mean, all of us have an image of a shield. You've either seen a, a movie with medieval knights fighting each other. Or maybe Roman, uh, the Roman legions going out to battle. This image of a massive shield standing between the person and the enemy. The attacker. God is that. 
He's a shield for the Christian. Nothing penetrates that shield that is not for your good. Nothing. Nothing. This is who God was to Abram. This is who God is to Abram. Even now as his soul dwells in bliss with God. And this is who God is to us. And so God says to Abram, don't be afraid. Look to me. That's the first thing we see this morning as we go through this confirmation passage. The second is credited righteousness. So look at verses four to six. We're gonna read those verses through. Verses four to six. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Man, what an incredible verse. When the New Testament authors reflected on the life of Abram, and especially when they reflected on this passage, their focus was on verse 6. It's really instructive, by the way, very instructive, when you read through the New Testament, to find those places in the New Testament, or let me say it this way, to find those places in the Old Testament that get a lot of air time in the New Testament. In other words, when the New Testament authors when those early Jewish Christians, those early followers of Jesus, were trying to wrap their mind around the Jesus movement, trying to wrap their mind about what, uh, 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 trying to wrap their mind around the Christ and what he came to do and what God's plan was. When they looked back to the Old Testament to substantiate all that Jesus came to do, what are the verses that they point to? What are the chapters they point to? And one of those biggest ones is what we're looking at today, Genesis 15. This is one of the reasons why we cannot, as some say, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is intricately woven into the message of Christ. You cannot embrace an Old Testamentless Christ. Christ comes up out of the Old Testament. And he will bring fulfillment to all of that as we enjoy heaven with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. So we see this passage being mentioned in the New Testament, various places. Verse 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This verse is cited in Romans 4, Galatians 3, and James 2. And what I want to do is just give you a little quote here from Romans chapter 4. I could kind of explain to you the significance of this verse, or I could just let Paul do it. He did a much better job than any of us could ever do, so I'm going to let Paul do it. Romans 4, verses 1 to 5. He does this as well in Galatians 3. I won't read both of them, but I do want you to see the major idea here from Romans 4, verses 1 to 5. This is what he says. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Now, let me stop here for a moment. Here's what Paul's saying. Did Abram's standing before God come from Abram's good deeds? Did Abram do some good things? Did he, did he follow God in a particular way? God's watching him. Okay, yes, you have right standing before me. You're in, clean before my sight. Is it that or is it something else? And this is what Paul says. For if Abram, Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Here he goes, he quotes this verse. Abraham believed God, And it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he says this. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, Christian. If you are a Christian, this is you. 
This is you if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, this is not you. Listen to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. If you are a Christian sitting in this room this morning, it is because you have come to God and you have believed that he can justify the ungodly only by faith, not by anything you've ever done. And you have thrown yourself entirely on that truth. You've trusted in God for salvation. If you are still trying to earn favor with God, if when you think about standing before God, you think, okay, how have I done so far? That is a, that is a clear indication you don't know Jesus. That is a clear indication you're not a Christian. Hear this today. We are made right with God only by faith. And then God gives us a new heart, transforms us. We start living for Jesus because we've been made right with him by faith. We can't earn it. Can never do enough good deeds to please this holy God. Our hearts are filled with sin. The sin in our lives is a web. We can't even see the depth of it. If God at any moment showed us the depth of our sinfulness, we would just crumble Even all of us in this room right now, the depth of our sinfulness, if we could see it all right now, God is gracious, he doesn't show it to us, but if we could see it all right now, we would weep. If we could see what's down deep in our hearts, the way we worship false gods, even now, this morning, God is so gracious. He bears with his children. He's forgiven us of all this sin, and one day we won't have that anymore. We'll be perfect and sinless But not a single person can earn salvation by their works. And that is exactly what Paul is saying. Genesis 15, 6 teaches that before Abram later got circumcised and did this and did that and circumcised his sons and anything else, before he did anything that God had commanded him to do with regard to this covenant, before he did any of those things, he believed. And that was his Righteousness. Abram was justified before God by faith, not by anything he did. He believed, and this means he accepted God's word as reliable, true, dependable. He trusted God, and God credited that faith to Abraham as righteousness. What does that mean, righteousness? I think we could understand it like this. If, if we understand that we have been credited righteousness, imagine that you, it's, it's like you have an account, like a bank account. And instead of being in the red, the bank account is as full as it possibly can be with perfection, with righteousness. God has credited that to your account, which means conformity to God's standard, acceptance in God's sight, freedom from the condemnation that sin deserves. How can God do that? How can God just take righteousness and put it on top of a wicked sinner? How can God take perfect, a holy God, a just God, take a murderer who kills people, a genocidal despot? How can God take righteousness and put it on that person and it cover all their sins and God look at them and say, come with me, you are my son. How? Because he punished his son in their place. That's how. That's Christianity. People, that's Christianity. If that's not the Christianity that you call your Christianity, don't think for a moment that you're a Christian. This is Christianity. Believing in this God who justifies the ungodly by faith in Jesus Christ who took sin upon himself, who became sin on the cross. God the Father looked at Jesus and turned away in disgust because he became sin for us. In disgust. It's an awful thought. And it is a wonderful thought because now in Christ, by faith, God will not look at me in disgust when he sees me on that day. He'll see Christ whom he punished for my sin. This is not cosmic child abuse. This is the redemption of the world through a willing shepherd of the sheep who will reign in glory forever with his bride, his people. We know that Abram had this faith from the beginning. 
as Hebrews 11 tells us, but it is at this point in the narrative, in this confirmation passage, that God chooses to highlight this fact. And it is God who gives the faith. It is God who graciously counts the faith as righteousness through Christ. It is God who does this. Our salvation is from God from first to last. God's not standing around waiting on you to choose him as though he's just standing there going, oh, that image of of, of Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. Let me in, let me in. That's not Jesus. He throws the door open and saves people. That's our Christ. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's not knocking at hearts, peeking in the window, asking you to please let him in. He's a king. He slams the door open and he saves undeserving sinners and gives them a heart that loves him and wills him, serves him, trusts him, and will spend eternity enjoying him. Abram reminds us that we can't get to heaven by doing anything. We must simply believe in Christ's finished work and all the promises that come Through him. You know, we've just celebrated Reformation Day, October 31st. We've just considered going all the way back to Martin Luther, the 95 Theses. We've just gone back to 500 years ago as the gospel and the scriptures were rediscovered, really. Not that medieval Christians, not that there weren't any Christians in medieval Europe or elsewhere, there were many. Undoubtedly. But the mass of the church had walked away from the biblical gospel. And one of the pillars of the Reformation is sola fide. Faith alone. Is that a part of your Christianity this morning? Faith alone. Just throw yourself at Christ this morning. If you are moved by this idea and you think... I'm just trying to earn my salvation. I'm trying to be a really good person. I talk to people sometimes. I ask them, are you a Christian? I'm trying to be. No, 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 no. It's not going to work. It's never going to happen. It's not going to work out for you. You're always going to live in this same pattern until death. But today you can trust Christ, his finished work for the forgiveness of your sins and be assured of eternal life. I want us to see one other thing this morning by way of implication. Abram's questioning in the midst of this faith reminds us that faith doesn't mean we don't ask God questions when we struggle. That's interesting, right? I mean, in the same passage, we've got Abram asking God these two questions. How can I know, Lord? And I don't have any offspring. And we're, we're wondering, but, 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 he, but he has faith? The kind of faith that justifies? What in the world is going on here? I mean, this doesn't seem like a lot of faith. If you didn't have verse six, it would seem like maybe Abram is just a complainer. Doesn't trust God at all. What we see here is that the people of God will have many questions for the Lord. We will lament, God help me, I'm struggling. Why is this happening? But we always fall back on confidence in him. We always fall back. On respecting him. And notice how he asks the question, O Lord God, O sovereign Lord. He does it with respect. He's not a complainer like the children of Israel in the wilderness. I don't like this food. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. This is miserable. Let's go back to Egypt. That's not it. O Lord God, he says, with respect. That's the second thing we need to see. The third thing is the clarification received. The clarification received as we come towards the end with these last two points. Clarification received. One of the most obvious features of this passage is that Abram's confusion is met with God's clarification. He has these two questions. He's confused. He's afraid. He's uncertain. He doesn't know what's going to happen. So what does God do? What does our loving heavenly father do for Abram in Genesis chapter 15? He clarifies first. He gives clarity and explanation about the offspring. Verse 4. And behold, of the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. So he gives Abram more information to calm his heart. He also takes him outside. And remember, he says, please, 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 look, look. Look up in the, st- look, look up in the sky. I've shown you the dust. The dust reminds you of all your descendants. And now I want you to look up at the sky and see your, your descendants are going to be innumerable like the stars of heaven. God is clarifying for Abram 
And then we see clarity about the land promises, verses 13 to 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Isn't that incredible? That is a full disclosure. The Lord tells Abram, this is how it's all going to play out. You've been wondering up till now, Abram? Well, let me tell you. Let me be very clear with you. Here's how it's going to happen. You're not going to die. Well, you're going to die at some point. But you're not going to die right now. You have nothing to be afraid of. You're going to live a life. You're going to die an old man. You're going to be in peace. As for your descendants, let me explain what I've meant all along. Here's what's going to happen. They're going to go through some dark and gloomy days. He's talking about the uh, enslavement in Egypt. They're going to go and be sojourners in a foreign land. That's Egypt. They're going to be there enslaved for 400 years. But afterwards, I'm going to bring them out. I'm going to judge that nation. That's the plagues that God sends on Egypt. And I'm going to bring them out to this land. And then he says, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, here's what God is saying. Once this diabolical wickedness, child sacrifice, uh, bestiality, all kinds of wickedness of Canaan has come to its full measure before the just eyes of God. He's going to send his people Israel into Canaan like a flood of destruction. And he's going to judge his people. We don't have to apologize for that as Christians. We don't have to, to help the world understand how God can endorse genocide in the Bible. It just is. It's there. It was God's plan of judgment. God destroyed the whole world by a flood. He will destroy the whole world again by fire if he chose to destroy these wicked Canaanites by the hands of his people. That's what he did. I don't have to apologize for God. To any scholar, any unbeliever, any skeptic, and you should not feel like you have to either. So we see God lays it out. He just lays it out for Abram. One thing that might be striking to us here is that God waits to do this. Hear this, hear this. God waits to do this. Why didn't God tell Abram everything at first? Have you thought about that? I mean, God could have called Abram out of the land. He could have said, this is exactly where I'm taking you. This is when you're going to die. You're going to be old. Don't worry. No problems. And I'm going to bring about your offspring and they're going to come out. They're going to go into this, this land. They're going to take it. It's going to be great. This is how it's all going to play out. That's not what God did. That's not what God does with us. We know that. Why? Why didn't God tell him everything at first? Why wait to this point? And I think this reminds us that the life of faith is a life of waiting. Hear that. The life of the Christian is by its very nature. It's intrinsic to being a Christian. To be one who waits on the Lord. The world knows nothing of that. That's why patience and perseverance and endurance are such huge themes in the Bible. Is because we are people who wait on the Lord. We wait for clarity. Right now, maybe this morning, you don't don't have clarity. And maybe you're frustrated with the Lord. You say, I don't understand why it is that you have not helped me in this area. We've all had experiences like that in our lives. I know I have where we just get to the end and we're just like, Lord, I keep praying about this. And, and, and we hope that we say, oh, Lord God. But sometimes we don't say it that way. And we're frustrated. Like the psalmist often. We're in Lamentations. We come to God. And I think here we're reminded that we must wait for clarity. God gives us answers in his timing. He gives us answers in his wisdom. That's not a fancy Christian cliche. It's the truth of God. That's what he does. Christians must wait, and we must wait for the consummation. I don't know about you, but I don't have a glorified body yet. I'm not living in, in an eternal, blissful state without sin. None of us is. So we must wait, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says to Titus, and that's what we must do. That's what Abram had to do. It's what all those who are of faith must do. Wait on the Lord. As we finish up this morning, we come to the covenant ratified. 
If the most significant part of this passage is verse 6, we would say that the climax of this passage is the ratification of the covenant. What's this passage about? Well, it's multifaceted. That, is, that has to be the key idea, is verse 6, justification by faith. It's, it's definitely the most important idea in the minds of the New Testament writers. But if we are to understand what's happening in chapter 15, it is the ratification of the covenant. Verse 18 says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. That's what this passage is about. God is making a covenant with Abram. Abram asked God a question. Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? What's God's response? Well, at this point, God doesn't just say to Abram, that's what I've told you, Abram. Move on. That's not what God says here. What God does is he makes a covenant with Abram. A visual binding confirmation of his promises. The dividing of the animals and walking through them is an ancient way of covenant making. In which the parties involved are saying, may this violent dividing of me happen if I do not keep this covenant. That was a a way that people at that time would make a covenant. It sounds very strange to us. I know. But you tear these animals in half. The birds are too small for that. Tear these animals in half. You make a little trail through them. And you walk through them. The people, the the covenant makers would walk through them and say, would this happen to me if I break this covenant? It's a very visual way of seeing how you bind yourself in commitment to this covenant. And what we have here is that God is visually binding himself to his promises. He walks through with his fiery, glorious, holy presence being depicted by a smoking fire pot and flaming torch. This is similar to the burning bush. Remember, God appears to Moses in the burning bush. It's just a fire. And here we have this this image of fire, basically just walking through down this path. And the darkness here reinforces God's presence because can you imagine this great and dreadful darkness? It is pitch black dark. If you've ever been to caverns or something like that, they get you down there, they turn out all the lights, you don't see anything, nothing. You can't, you wave your hand in front of your face, you see no movement. This is dark. And in that, we see God walking through. He images himself there, symbolizing himself with these fiery objects. God alone walks through. Notice that. God doesn't say, okay, Abram, your turn. I walked through. Your turn. That's not it. God alone walked through. And what he said is, this promise I'm making to you is unconditional. It simply is, Abram. It's unilateral. It is unconditional. There is nothing Abram can do to unsettle it. And that really is like our salvation. You say, hold on a second. There's nothing I can do uh, to give up my salvation. A true Christian will persevere to the end. Never losing his or her salvation. Preserved in this unconditional covenant of God's grace. And that's what we see here with Abram. It will involve suffering and death on the part of Abram's descendants. But God will accomplish these things. In a moment, we're going to have the Lord's Supper. And as we prepare for that now, we are reminded of the new covenant that is in Christ's blood. The accomplishment of God's promises come only through the suffering and death of Christ. So let me read you this from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. as we, in a moment, will do the Lord's Supper. This is what Paul says regarding the Lord's Supper. He says, in the same way also... He took the cup, speaking of Jesus, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The covenant that God has made with us, the unconditional covenant that God has made with us in Christ is a covenant that is found in the blood of Jesus through his sacrificial death on the cross. Those who trust in his finished work will receive the promises of eternal life. We are already blessed. We are already partakers. We are already offspring and heirs. But one day, all of these promises 
will be fully realized. Let me read to you as we close from Matthew 8. These are wonderful words for the Christian. This is right from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. Matthew 8, 11. He says, I tell you, many, that's us, that includes us, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This is not yet, but it will be. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for your covenant of grace. We praise you for your love for us in sending your Son, in choosing us before the world began in him and sending him to save his church, to die for his sheep, to purchase his bride, that he might make us spotless and clean on that great day. Father, we thank you for how you worked in Abram's life and how you encapsulate all of your plans and purposes in Abram's life for the later nation of Israel and for the extension of that to the Gentiles as we, the church of Jesus Christ, worship you, looking to a passage very old, written a long time ago, as being filled with hope and joy, being filled with reassurance and affirmation. God, we thank you for this word. We pray that we will use it well, that we will meditate upon it this week, be with our gospel community groups. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.